We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hello and welcome to the Esports Biz Show. I'm your host, Justin Jacobson. This week we'll be discussing esports associations and federations. Just as a disclaimer, nothing here is intended as legal advice as all of the information is for educational purposes only. This week's guest is Elliot Oreskovic. Elliot is the Chief Operating Officer for the United States Esports Association. The U.S. Esports Association assists in the development of recreational esports in the U.S. He's also the managing partner for business and strategy for Azara Gaming, which is a semi-professional esports organization and a league administrator. Elliot is also president of Burning River Esports, an organization promoting positive youth development through esports in the greater Cleveland and Northeast Ohio area. Finally, he's an ambassador for women in games. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So, you know, to briefly introduce the topic, we're now exploring esports associations and federations. So, due to the global and largely untracked growth of esports, governing bodies of various levels and jurisdictions began to be created by interested stakeholders, such as players, teams, game developers, government agencies. And they started to implement governing policies and even laws governing esports in their respective countries in geographic areas. These include associations that aim to govern global or international esports on a large scale, such as the International Esports Federation, Global Esports Federation, the World Esports Association, and even the Esports Integrity Commission, which was actually created to prosecute all forms of cheating in the esports. There are even federations that focus on a specific geographic continent, such as Europe or Asia, such as the European Esports Federation, or ones that really focus on a particular country, such as just gaming and esports matters in the U.S. or Germany or Spain or Italy. So you have like the British Esports Association, the Bahama Esports Federation, and then 
probably one that's been around for one of the longest is, you know, Kespa, which was, you know, back formed in South Korea early on due to the StarCraft takeover in that country and created a whole licensing ranking system and really tried to professionalize what was going on in the scene. And more similarly, Japan Esports was formed in Japan and they actually issue pro licenses for individuals to compete competitively and really kind of change the whole infrastructure and legal matters there. So now we know a bit about esports associations and federations. How's about your past esports and gaming experience? Yeah. So um, I got involved <laughs> really against my will uh, in esports back in 2018. A uh, buddy ended up uh, placing well in an entrepreneurship competition, somehow affiliated with his uh, with his college and. He called me up one day. He said, Elliot, I need you to make up some numbers. I'm like, all right, this is the only thing I can do. I will make up some numbers for you. Made up the numbers. They were reasonably convincing. They ended up winning. Some stuff happened. Uh, you know, then then we're talking. Then we're shopping around an esports lounge to to VC firms and trying to get some money out of them. Never did. But that was enough to kind of get started in esports. Then really oh. from there, you know, it was... I'd say a lull for about half a year. Uh, then we ended up founding a uh, semi-pro org. That's Azara. Um, our we only had one team when we started, and it was <laughs> really in name only. Um, we just happened to know them from the community, and they were looking for some sort of org to rep to seem more official. We mm-hmm. said, "All right." Um, Poof, then you're our then, team, Magic. There it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Basically, um, it turned out that they were really good together. Uh, I don't think they compete together still, unfortunately, because of internal problems. But they were really good. And they ended up going to uh, the final stage of the uh, 2019 U.S. Nationals for Rainbow Six Siege. So, you know, while <laughs> while uh, Azara will never be a uh, household name for uh, out of esports orgs. If you look on the uh, wiki for that event, it does seem like that is the case because um, we are right, up there. It's one shining moment in history. Yeah, we 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 ended up beating uh, Luminosity, and then I think we just we just missed out uh, placing higher than Evil Geniuses. So okay, well, you know. so we'll start talking about that company a little. So you know, why'd you guys create it, and you know, what are you currently working on now with it? Yeah. Um, so that again it started as a normal org um we had one team after that team decided to lose you know obviously intentional um <laughs> they they you know there was again there were there was internal problems and uh, you know infighting leads to infighting which leads to more problems and eventually they decided to leave uh because we didn't get them jerseys quick enough and i'm like all right fine whatever so we lost that we we had some Rocket League players that we were friends with as well, and we're like, okay, well, we can keep going with this normal league tra- or this normal uh, org trajectory, um, and just do Rocket League. But that also didn't really seem right. Um, they they were good. It's just it doesn't go anywhere, and there's really no money in it, especially if they're only competing in you know five hundred dollar tournaments where they might win a hundred dollars, split that amongst themselves, and you know, we're, we're not making money out of this. There's no right, exposure. $10 either. cut doesn't really help. 
<laughs> I, I we actually had it um, just to keep them on. So we we, we had a very favorable uh, cut worked out. So it's like anything over a thousand dollars, we'd take ten percent. But if you made less than that, we wouldn't touch it. Um, and that's how we ended up getting teams that were decent. But that again, you know, it does mean that all the 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 business focus transitions from taking cuts, which is how everybody else does it, to trying to figure out a way to actually support the team through sponsors and and advertising. But you know, if if you're only competing again in five hundred dollar tournaments you're never going to have the reach to justify getting a sponsor or at least one that's going to pay you well. So, you know, after learning that lesson, um, Hmm. we decided that we needed to obviously pivot to something. And it was just a matter of what, um, back in 2018, when we, uh, um, initially did the, uh, or, or when we were shopping around the lounge idea, we had the idea Additionally, that specific to Northern Ohio, it would be interesting if there was like a sort of large conference for the area and it really kind of expanded to everything. So, you you, you know, you have your esports, you have your cosplay, you have everything, but keep it around a gaming focus. Um, but obviously make esports a key part of it so that we can attract that audience and obviously build our names within it. That you know, requires some significant event management uh, finesse that we didn't have. And um, we, as we were talking to people for the, for the VC thing, we were kind of looping that in as a way to segue into competitions to build up the, the lounge idea. And then some other ideas that some of the groups wanted to do, um, which meant that that kind of got put on the back burner regardless. So we weren't really planning for it. But that's always kind of been in our mind as something we wanted to do. So when it came time to pivot for Azara, um, that kind of came up. And we're like, well, the focus there was never on pro teams. It was never on semi-pro teams. It was on getting high schools and colleges because neither of those two groups, especially within northern Ohio, northeast Ohio specifically, um, actually Throughout Northern Ohio, pretty equitably, I'd say. But either way, there there isn't like a very clear infrastructure, especially here. And then a lot of schools just don't have the resources to do it anyway. So they're not even participating in esports in any fashion. We said, all right, well, you know, if, if we come in there, make a big event out of it, we can get a lot of schools on board and then possibly, you know, through some simple conversions, try to get something started there. Well, because we always had that in the back of our minds, when it came time to pivot again, um, we said, instead of top, we're just going to go to the bottom. And we said, well, what is the furthest down that we can go and still reasonably make money on it? And that was uh, amateur event management. So from there, um, we started talking with different groups that were already running uh, within amateur siege. And basically came at him and said, listen, you know, we'll handle your marketing. We'll find you money. We'll, we'll, we'll make the business side of this work more than it is now because um, they're very poorly run. We'll, we'll make it work better as long as you make us, you know, your exclusive group that does it. And we can put our name on some stuff on the back end. That's all we're looking for. And then we'll take a cut, you know, a, a small cut, but we'll we'll take a cut so we can, you know, start making money. And eventually we'll have our own leagues and build up a brand that way. 
that didn't work. No one wants anything to do with us. Great. From there, uh, we, we, we ended up talking to a person who was starting a new league in the community. At this point, he wasn't a very big name, but he did have a following. He starts the league. We come on. We say, hey, this is what we're interested in doing. This is where we see the scene going. He agreed. We became, you know, acquaintances. Uh, hmm. And then we ended up buying the Twitter from him for like 25 bucks. So that was our first league. Uh, he called it R6 Royale. That's what we called it. Um, so that ran the alpha season for that ran, I think, in the first half of 2020, maybe closer towards the summer. Um, the focus on that was sort of just uh, really making the league experience and, and well, really making the competitive play experience more of an entertainment experience rather than an actual competitive experience. So, yeah, competition is a central part of it. But at the end of the day, it's entertainment. We want to have so we're going to do. Well, it's it's having fun, but also um, making it so that we can appeal to the casual audience that um, will watch like highlight reels on YouTube and they'll watch the major events, but they won't watch smaller events because the smaller events are only focused on competition. So, you know, just making it more broadly appealing by having the entertainment factor be a core component of what we're doing. Um, you know, obviously everyone should have fun. <laughs> yeah, that's, <laughs> we're not going to argue that, but um, it should be fun for the viewer too, was really the the angle we were taking. And watching teams that you've never heard of is not fun, which means that you're never going to do it unless you're like real hardcore in the scene. And some people are. So we did that. Um, I think at our height, we had like 12 teams that were on that obviously got called down over the season as it happens. Um, I think the highest we ever got was 50 CCV on a stream. So nothing too, nothing too impressive, but obviously it's, it's big, um, especially for a new league. Um, compare that to some other leagues that when they started, they'd be getting somewhere between one and 10, depending on the teams. Uh, competing you know we we've we've definitely been there and we've had those numbers but we were able to kind of hold our own from day one which meant that we were able to gain attention uh from the casters that we'd have on and they would even recognize like oh you know this is this is clearly a well-run league like you do know what you're doing um you know even if it's not enormous at this point there is something happening and it should uh be better in the future the problem was that um, trying to convince a group of people that are solely focused on the competitive aspect of what they're doing, that this is going to be an entertainment experience, one, isn't a, isn't a very easy sell to begin with. Um, but two, it just didn't work. Uh, they were not convinced and they were very angry that that's what we wanted to do. So... Because of that, we decided, well, what was the one time that we did well throughout the season? Overwhelmingly, you know, how did we get the 50 CCV? And we got it because we had two women's teams. Uh, Disrupt Gaming, they, they have a women's team. Um, that's actually the team. Funnily enough, now that I think about it, uh, Disrupt is the team that our uh, original Siege team lost to uh, in the Nationals, um, which is funny because they're now a pro team. But 
Uh, they had a women's team. We had them on board as well as another team, uh, Team Sinister. They're big in Australia, but they also had a women's team in North America. So, you know, we had them competing. We said, well, let's have a big event. They're the two focus. You know, we're, we're going to have female casters as many, well, as many are in the scene um, and, and really make it a whole thing that got a lot of it. That got a lot of attention. So from there, we decided that we were going to do a women's league because that was clearly the better alternative if we're going for CCV in order to grow it, which is the focus, obviously, um, if you're going to make it a business. So that's when Queens League got born. That was around, I'd say, midsummer, um, maybe going into the fall. So the first season of that, uh, we got every single uh, women's league in North America or uh, um, women's team in North America, which admittedly, there's only six women's teams in North America. So we had six teams. But again, mm-hmm. every women's team in North America. And I'll always phrase yeah, it like somewhere. Yeah, I will always phrase it in the best possible way. Um, you know, it's a very underdeveloped scene, so it's not entirely surprising. But that happened. I've uh, got about six teams. They competed. They love it. You know, I, I think they love it. Um, they they don't hate us. They want to keep doing it, right? So that's a good sign. It's definitely good. Uh, we're going into our second season uh, probably mid-January. So it's exciting. But... Um, the good thing from that is we were right about that being the way to go. Obviously, you know, there's the there's the um, the moral aspect to it. And there's there's a way to to spin this so that it is more of a charitable thing. Maybe not charitable, but I mean, it's it's obviously helping more about out equality in gaming. Exactly. You're bringing out a new platform right. and a new game. And, you know, someone who works in the space, you know, I have some female pro CSGO and Valorant players and. PUBG players and like you said there's only six rainbow six teams where how many male teams are there probably more than you can count so it's Uh, just nice that you're creating this place this platform that they can go and compete in the game that they clearly are passionate about and as you kind of noticed and I think is a really good lesson for all of our listeners is businesses don't happen overnight it's trial and error and try and go back and what worked and what didn't and how do we fix and you know, I think what you just explained was how you really build a business and something that's real, where you have an idea, you try it, it doesn't work, you know, but you see certain things that are working of it. And, you know, maybe the idea of this semi-pro Remo 6 League didn't work, but it led you to say, okay, wow, there's this really unique niche within it in the all-female world because so many people are tuning into it because there's nothing else like it. And to be able to see something like this really connects with the female gamers fans because those fans want to watch them compete at a high level against other people that are competing at a high level. So you're able to really kind of take the market data that you retrieved by actually doing. Because I think that's the biggest thing that I always tell to people is like, yeah, you could talk and say what you're going to do and this, that, and the third, but you just got to do what Nike says and just do it and just try because, you know, what you do today, I guarantee you is not going to be the same way you thought it was going to plan out six months or a year later or whatever it is, but being able to identify what works, being able to adapt, being able to understand that maybe I have to change how I'm operating in order to grow, or maybe what I initially thought was going to work isn't like, that's all part of it. And 
you know, I think for our listeners to kind of hear someone who's legitimately went through the trial and error process and came out with clearly a unique and workable product is, you know, really something to applaud. Yeah, I mean, that's actually it's actually great that you're worded like that, um, because, well, one, um, even today, uh, we we do try to reiterate to all the people we work with. And obviously, the the women's community is, is our major focus. Um, and, and they're they're aware that this is the case with us as well. But, um, you know, we, we do reiterate that we are going to fail and things are going to go wrong, but that's fine because we'll fix it. Um, and this was kind of the reason for uh, calling the R6 Royale thing uh, in, in the beginning of the year an alpha instead of season one, because you can always forgive someone for having a bad alpha. You can't forgive someone for having a bad season one, because now it just makes it look like you're just bad at doing whatever you're doing. If you call it an alpha, it's clearly like, oh, yeah, you know, it's you experimental. The and then it moves right. forward. Yeah, I mean, we <laughs> we were at a point um at one point we were like you know we're getting like 24 ccv this is good um it's not but we're like it's good um you know if if we need to go into beta fine we'll do that you know we we can even go into gamma um but we never did and now you know the women's the the women's community highly engaged so i think uh on the best day at the beginning of the season you know because there is drop off the best day at the beginning of the season, we're getting like 150 to 200 CCV average. And then it drops off to around somewhere between 80 and 120. Um, and it, it really just is like there, there is no platform or, or not even platform. There's there is no space for women to compete, you know, in an environment where it is just people competing to have fun and everyone's a friend. Um, there there are very few um brutal rivalries that actually uh are people hating each other in the women's community um at least from our perspective but that is not the case for the men's side of it i mean i think that what's you know nice about it and kind of what you're noticing is you're creating this new environment and i think teams and other people are going to see like oh wow like maybe weren't in you know the first season but you know six becomes eight becomes 12 becomes 20 overnight really quickly as you do the right things and especially in these grassroots communities where like, you know, they may another team captain may be following someone and they see, Oh wow. Like check out us in this match and they see a nice graphic and they tune in and now they want to sign their team up. And, you know, you slowly kind of grow and build and you kind of find where you fit in. And like you said, the, the, the 50 becomes a hundred becomes 200 becomes a thousand becomes 2000. Now you're talking. Yeah. <laughs> You know, yeah, so I mean, that's it's 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 a matter of time is the way that we look at it. So as long as we're doing the things right on our end, you know, the money will come. And that's just how we've been viewing it. You know, we, we have the engagement numbers. I mean, right now, I'll be honest with you. There's no reason that any good marketer wouldn't see our like we, we you know, we have our deck and everything. And it's all laid out. Um, but there's no reason that any good marketer who has a little bit of money sitting around just at the end of the year, wouldn't go, oh, there's clearly an opportunity here. We're going to put our name on this. You know, it's 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 small, but it's highly engaged. You know, our, our conversion rate is through the roof. But yeah, they're passionate um, about it. They really care about it. And I think that that's a really unique aspect. And, you know, as you grow and as you get, you know, more data over time and more players involved, I think that 
you know, these are kind of how it grows. So, you know, shifting right. a little bit. So what are some typical issues encountered when, you know, operating one of these leagues and, you know, kind of acting as a league admin as you guys have been? Money. <laughs> right? It's just kind That's of down to one. being able to do it. Um, I mean, I, I think everything just comes down to money. Like there, there are other issues that, that aren't money related. Um, people fight, people cheat, people, um, I mean, that's really the two major things. Right. We have cheaters uh, and bad people, sports. Uh, leagues or not leagues, uh, teams dissolve overnight is another major issue, especially at this level. Um, now we're lucky enough to where, because we have a very specific part of the community, when it, when a team does dissolve, the players aren't going away. They're just reorganizing, mm-hmm. which is, you know, that, that's, and how that obviously, that's how the 2K community is. And even how some yeah. of these, you know, semi-pro CSGO, Valorant teams, you go into a tournament and you lose, or you don't do well, and they blow them up when it's over. <laughs> yeah, except they blow it up uh, the first time that they lose. So, <laughs> you know, it's not great, but it happens. It's pretty close. I, I would say that it, you know, it might be pretty much after they lose the first time as well. I maybe I don't know um but yeah I mean those are issues but those are issues that everybody has so there's nothing there's no real way to deal with it and it does come down to money a lot of the time because if if you can pay people to compete or give them an incentive um you know with, with a larger prize pool that's more equitably distributed across the different standings then there's obviously a reason that they would stick together at least for the whole season and actually complete what they started um, but that does suppose that you have the money to support that. And even, you know, if you have six teams, like a hundred dollars is a lot, but if, if you're putting a hundred dollars on your sixth place, like what do you need to put on, on the first place to get them to want to compete and still make it competitive? Um, then you have to pay casters, observers, assuming that, you know, you aren't doing it yourself and, <laughs> and assuming that you want to be, uh, I don't know, ethical about it um which isn't always a given but a lot of it comes down to money Uh, but you know the issues above it are just infighting and and uh things being i don't want to say unstable but you know things they were two days ago isn't a given and you kind (laughs) of have to adapt it's like halfway through the season the team just drops out and now you have one less team I we uh, we actually lost half of our teams for Queens League because we ran it too long. Um, I think the I think the optimal length is one month. Well, one and a half months. Uh, we we tried to push it to two, and that didn't work. <laughs> so okay, well that's a lot of a, it's a trial and error, and that I think is yeah. you know what business is about. Oh yeah, like there's no you know there's there's no way that any of this works if you don't screw it up. Because it's not obvious that two months is somehow magically inferior to one and a half. Those two extra weeks make such a big difference. Right. Well, yeah, so I mean, absolutely. So what is something unique, you know, that sets your participant rules or code of conduct, maybe apart from some of the others in the space? So, um, I mean... I think there's a couple things that we really try to differentiate ourselves by and that we've always differentiated ourselves by. So it all kind of starts with our three pillars. Um, 
<laughs> I say pillars. Our three groups of values might be a better way to say it. Pillars uh, the are first good. Is, sounds very philosophical. Oh, it is. But we have like three things for each pillar. And people get angry at us for that. Um, so the first one is sustainability, accountability, and transparency. You know, it's it's our business side of it. So obviously it has to be sustainable, which is where we have to actually be at least breaking even at some point. Um, uh, accountability, we, we, we take that to mean that there is actually a legal entity apart from the people, you know, that are that are running it so that if we don't pay you, there's someone that's going to be on the line and that's going to be minorly more accountable than just some guy. Um, and then transparency. I, I think it's very rare that we keep secrets, especially because there aren't really like hard trade secrets at the amateur level that someone else isn't already going to know. And, you know, even if they don't know it, they'll know it tomorrow. So it's better to just be open with everybody because it does give you the benefit of the doubt. And obviously it builds trust, which is a big part of this. So that's the first thing. Um, the second is player representation. Um, we actually kind of expanded that at one point to stakeholder representation, but we didn't really like the results that we were getting, tried to integrate other people involved. And I think we want to keep it player focused, but just really making sure that the players are the ones making the important decisions when they can. Um, you know, at the end of the day, it, it, it is it is a dictatorship. We run it. It's our league. But and, and that does mean that at times we do make decisions that people do not like. But we do it because we think that it's it's in the best interest of the league at this point in time so that it exists for another 10 years. Um, so even if, you know, even if people don't like it, we'll be around. But. Again, player representation is a big part of it. We, we have a players association. We used to have a founders board, um, which ended up getting dissolved because we pivoted so hard and people just weren't interested in it and didn't really see value. But in players association, um, you know, at, towards the end of Queens League season one, uh, I think we expanded it so that every single player, you know, main or sub on any team had access to the channel and then the team captains or, you know, we, we, we refer to them as team representatives because they are different technically. Um, they're the ones that can talk and they're the ones that really advocate for their teams. Um, this also does mean that um, unlike other leagues where, you know, you, you um, have to go through, you know, 10 different levels um, of bureaucracy. We don't have bureaucracy. It's just us. We are the people you talk to, um, which means that if there's ever a problem, you go to me or you go to my buddy who's the guy I run everything with. Um, uh, and then when we do have meetings with the Players Association, it's me and the other guy. So you're always involved with the people that run it. You're always involved with the people that own it. And there's no difference between the two. Scalability is a concern, but not a concern we have to deal with right now. So we don't worry about it. Um, then the third pillar is uh, diversity, inclusivity, and non-toxicity. Um, you know, we're, we're trying to build a community in anything we're doing. And the problem with Rainbow Six Siege, especially at the amateur level, is that it's very toxic. It gets, it gets incredibly hostile. Um, people are racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic, etc. 
basically any any phobia people are they just have. mean on the computer let's just let's just call it <laughs> like it is people are um it's it's a little more exacerbated in this sub community um they're a little more open but you know it's obviously a problem that everyone faces so um at the beginning when we didn't have a, a women's specific focus that was still a concern and we wanted to make sure that we were open so that any women's teams that were around would feel comfortable competing. That was sort of the case because we got two teams involved, but it wasn't, you know, as good enough as, as it could have been. So creating a women's only space was the way to go. Once we did that, the diversity, inclusivity and non-toxicity thing kind of transformed into being a zero tolerance policy for literally anything that, you know, if, 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 if something is minorly toxic, and it's not obviously a joke that we know it's a joke or that, you know, one of the people involved can affirm is a joke. You're probably going to get kicked. You know, you, you might just get removed from the community because if we're going to be building something that people feel comfortable in, we can't allow that to occur. Luckily, that hasn't been a huge issue. Um, it's happened a couple of times in Twitch chat because we do again because our numbers are good. We 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 sift to the top. But again, you know, it's been reasonably okay. As we grow, I'd expect it to get a little worse because we're getting more people involved. But at the end of the day, that's one of the other uh, core things. So really three things along which everything that we kind of see ourselves as being different from uh, boiled down to. So the business part, the representation part, and the diversity part, really. Absolutely. So I was kind of touching on the players association thing, because I know that that's a really a hot button topic, especially in the professional scene that I'm dealing with. And there's all these pros and cons of unions and some titles in the pro scene, whether it's CSGO or Fortnite have established their own. And, you know, so let me just kind of get this. It's just kind of like almost like bringing gripes they have of how things are operating or what's going on with the gameplay. Or is it actual like, because I would say that some of these professional players associations focus on how trades can happen set salaries work conditions and kind of how transfers work is it more focused on that or is that really not part of the conversation um i mean i think the way that we try to keep it i mean we we try to keep it as open as possible so it really just is a place i I think the wording is always an issue. And the only reason we chose Players Association was just because it has an obvious connotation that people within the space understand. So they get the essence of what we're doing. What it really is, is just a, a disputes resolution platform. So if you don't like something that we're doing, yeah, exactly. It's like your forum or this is where you okay. do it. Right. I think that's great. I think that especially in one of these communities, it lets people kind of air out their differences and opinions in a respectful way and gives you the opportunity to address them before they go on Twitter and say this, 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 because we all know that things go south quickly when, you know, people control the narrative <laughs> publicly and the conversation changes and their fan jumps on and what started has a simple disagreement over scoring becomes a whole m massacre where things are no longer going to operate because, X, Y, and Z jumped in. So I think that it's, you know, really unique that you guys have that. And you know, I'm really excited yeah. to see where you go with it. So, yeah. you know, I mean, I'll even say, no, yeah, I'll even say, um, cause you mentioned the Twitter thing. <laughs> we, 
we really are, are very against taking things public that don't need to be public. So if you, if you have a problem with one of like a very specific thing that we decided to implement, we'd much rather prefer you keep it internal because there's no reason to get 90,000 other people involved. Um, and kind of a large part of having the Players Association is just so that people don't feel like they need and, and also um, having like no bureaucracy actually plays into this, too. But just giving people the, a feeling that they don't need to go to Twitter to get results. Like you can get results if you just tell us what the problem is and assuming it's not something that we feel is not in the best interest of the league, which I think there's only one thing that ever came up like that. And it honestly isn't that big of a problem because most of the teams are on board with the ideas. It's like a uh, sort of a uh, like a map uh, choosing thing. So it's Mm -hmm. very game specific. But you know, just making people feel like they can just tell us the problems. We'll fix it. Don't go on Twitter. And we don't <laughs> we we do not engage in Twitter fights because of that. And in, even in the, the general chat for our discord, um, we had somebody uh, who didn't really understand, like, this is what the Players Association is. If you have a problem, tell us. So they, they did take it public and we just didn't respond. And that just made them even more angry. <laughs> and um, they ended up dropping their team, um, which is kind of a it's it's a joke within the community because of how it went down. But, you know, it, it wasn't a player issue, I guess, at the end of the day, which was good. So the players are still there. They like us. And but yeah, OK, awesome. really keeping things as you know internal as possible. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the best way to approach business. So now kind of turning to, you know, the main topic of today. So tell us about the United States Esports Association. You know, what is it? What does it do? Why did you guys create it? Yeah. So the United States Esports Association uh, was founded back in 2018. Things got started in 2020. So we haven't done much, but we know a lot of people. Um, Founded to support the development of recreational esports across the United States. Uh, We do that along three value pillars, uh, education, recreation, and diversity and inclusion. The recreation part is obvious, um, but it does hinge on what we call recreational esports. What I mean by that is taking um, amateur esports and just shoving it into a traditional rec context. So you have your local sense of community, but it is esports at the end of the day. So there are larger competitions that are strung together um, with online components. And then, you know, obviously the games are different. Um, Education kind of takes two approaches. Um, One is more parent and traditional organization oriented. So it's just, what are your kids doing? What is esports? What do you need to know so that you have a minimal understanding of what's going on? Um, and then the other side of it is player fo- uh, oriented, not focused. Um, so um, a lot of it is like your, tra- like your normal stuff that you'd expect in sports media. So skills development, talent development, how do you actually go about doing what you're doing healthily and so that you're not burning out within a day. Um, then the diversity and inclusion part really should be expanded to diversity, inclusion, equity, and accessibility. But that's not nearly as catchy, so we don't do that. Um, But that really is just making sure that as we develop whatever we're developing, 
that is a core component. And whether that takes, you know, center stage or whether it's a back end thing, it's going to be somewhere in whatever we're doing. And it's going to have a not insignificant role in our programming. So, um, you know, supporting the development of recreational esports, obviously large. The way it was originally intended uh, by our founder is really drawing on his experience with uh, recreational tennis. So he's from Venezuela originally. And he when when you know he played tennis in Venezuela when he came to the US, obviously Venezuela has, you know, its its uh, recreational infrastructure. When he came to the US, he found exactly the same thing. So he joined the the US Tennis Association, competed recreationally through that, and you know, everyone had a good time. But because he was working at Microsoft uh, in their Xbox division, he very quickly realized that esports doesn't have like that it's you know its own usta it just doesn't exist um and the only real way to get recreationalism out of esports is to do it um through a very local organization like your parks and recs department like a rec center itself maybe through your school um or you know just you know queuing up casually but that's not in new york we call it zog sports they have zog kickball and softball and it's you know, kind of the beer league happy hour football where, yeah, you're playing a sport competitively, but it's also about socializing and connecting with people and, you know, kind of the whole fun aspect of it. It's not solely the competitive, competitive angle that a professional league or tournament might be. Right. Um, and then kind of orienting it so that whatever the programming happens to be, you know, you, you can obviously start here and go somewhere else or stay here and do everything else at the same time. So we aren't limited um, in where we fit in the pipeline. If anything, we sit, you know, parallel to the pipeline so that at any time, even if you're a pro, there is something you're getting out of recreationalism within esports, And we're the people that can help with that. Um, sort of our focus um Obviously, again, he wanted to build the USTA of esports. That meant actually building rec leagues. I think the focus has kind of shifted, sort of as we've gotten a better understanding of what the environment looks like that we'll, that we're working with, and kind of the readiness and the willingness to accept this sort of thing within the traditional uh, institutions at the local level that we would be relying on to support this long term. Um, so we are kind of shifting to more of an educational, informational and uh advocacy consultancy sort of not advocacy consultancy sort of uh role so working with uh universities high schools uh middle schools governments chambers of commerce tourism boards anybody really that has an influence uh in bringing this sort of a program to their area we we want to be your nonprofit group that comes in give you the baseline information that you need to know to sort of make very basic decisions about what you want to do going forward with respect to esports. And if you decide to go forward, um, you know, we're obviously connected enough to know all the different other organizations in the space that you should be talking to. So just handing you off to the people that can help we can you give you a roadmap to done. doing it. Is that you can provide them right. a roadmap of, okay, this is who you talk to. This is the tech, this is the educational and, so what do you guys most recently worked on? Uh? Yeah, so we actually, um, 
two things I think is what we'll highlight. So the first um, was the first time we ever did anything. And that was back in March. No, not March. It started in March, I think. I don't know. Um, it was uh, we were working with uh, the Boys and Girls Club of Atlantic City, then a parents group in a suburb of Atlantic City. And it was sort of just a summer program. It was meant to be bigger and it, and it had the Microsoft stores involved. But, you know, that did change once we found out there was a pandemic um, and that kind of halted everything very quickly. But that was the first time we ever did anything, obviously a very small scale and very local. So there isn't anything um, to note there. We, we, you know, we we made some friends, I guess, is the important thing. Then uh, most recently, actually, there's two things recently. So one is through the Global Esports Federation. So um, in addition to obviously being a national charity oriented around amateur esports or recreational esports, uh, we are the U.S. representative to the Global Esports Federation, which means that anytime that they want to do things, we do it for them within the U.S. Uh, and potentially for North America. But there is sort of like a not a bidding process, but you have to petition to do it. And we, we were lucky enough to get it for this past event. So we hosted uh, what we called the American Esports Week, um, which it was. <laughs> quote unquote sort of celebrating um what uh like the most american version of esports is um really playing up that this is america's esports um some of the international people that we're friends with on twitter did not like that we were doing that but that's how america is and we're more than willing to support it so uh the first half of the week was uh working through all the uh independent organizations that obviously have a community, have programming, sort of just aligning what they're doing with what we're doing, drawing attention to them and sort of bringing them into the the, the space that, that the Global Esports Federation is trying to build. Um, and then we did two larger events. So one was a summit on esports amateurism, had some panels. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Um, everything we did there with, was obviously oriented towards the amateur community. So there was four uh, different kind of tracks, business, charity, uh, scholastic esports and talent development, which, you know, if you're viewing it from a high level, those are the four buckets you're dealing with. Obviously, each bucket has a lot more in it, but that's a start uh, that, that that sort of ended the week uh, or we, we ended the week with a North American Rocket League Invitational uh, $5,000 pool we split that into three thousand dollars split uh equally among the eight teams charities of choice um to make it a charity event because we're we're big on that um and then 2k to the top two teams so 1.5 and then 500 then we got msi uh to sort of or to offer merch to the third and fourth place teams so you know top four teams benefited um that also got streamed uh over the uh, Global Esports Federation's Twitch on uh, a couple days after because of the way that they sort of do things. But that got attention there, and hopefully the teams will get some recognition out of it. Um, and then additionally, what we're doing uh, within a couple weeks, maybe a month, sometime between January and February, uh, is back in August, we committed to doing a fundraising event for the South Florida Council of the BSA. Um, and you know, that, that was a planning nightmare 
because there's a lot of very specific considerations that we honestly were not prepared for. Um, but still committed to doing it. And uh, that, that should be happening sometime between uh, January and February. Um, what we want it to be is a collegiate uh, invitational for Rocket League, um, obviously with a South Florida focus so that we're keeping it local. Obviously, fundraising there would uh, be a lot easier because there is a local component. But if we need to make it national, we'll make it national. But yeah, so that's what we've done and what we'll be doing very soon. Awesome. So, you know, turning the Global Esports Association, I know you kind of mentioned the Global Esports Federation. So what's the difference between the International Esports Federation and the Global Esports Federation? And you think more companies and associations will continue to emerge or, you know, where do you think this trend goes? Yeah. So, um, you know, the the politics of esports is definitely bizarre. And it does mean that there's a lot of organizations that try to mimic what uh, you sort of have with traditional sports. So there, there is an IOC. The IOC has different groups that it considers to be the representative organization for that sport. Then those organizations have their own internal hierarchies and ways to do everything on a federated system that are just historical. So there's no real consistency. But um you know people are trying to to imitate that with uh esports so at the ioc level you have the global esports federation which is based in singapore um and the international esports federation which is based in south korea the difference really is what their primary focus is so the international esports federation it's been around for it's been around since 2008 actually um they've had their 12th um, international uh, sort of competition in South Korea just this past year. It was really cool because it is, you know, actually international. Their 100th member nation, you know, throw that little tidbit out there. Yeah. It's, it's large, I think, is the important thing. They have, a lot of, they, they have a lot of countries that are very underdeveloped when it comes to esports and not a lot of attention is paid to them. So if there's one thing that they're particularly good at, it's that. It's appealing to groups that are otherwise uh, not ostracized, but not included. Um, so that's their focus. And they've obviously been they're obviously very old. Uh, then you have the Global Esports Federation. They popped up in 2019 um, and they kind of gained very they they got very big, very quick because uh, they got uh, initial support from Tencent. So they have money on their side. It's also staffed by a lot of former IOC people, and it has Olympians on boards and commissions as well. So it is being run exactly how you would assume the uh, IOC is being run. Um, and because of that, they obviously brought their connections with them. So there are a lot of traditional organizations that are on board with what the GEF is doing in esports. Uh, the one that they love to brag about is the International Squash Group. I don't know what they're called. Um, they they always have the uh, the guy who runs that on on webinars, and I, I think that's funny because it's not a particularly large sport, but it's very big in 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 their little circle. So they do that. Um, what really differentiates them is that, um, at least up until now, they haven't taken a governance perspective. Like th their focus really is on just bringing all the different stakeholders together and saying, "Listen, like we're all going to have to deal with this." Um, and the industry is obviously going to evolve and flood into everybody else's spaces. So rather than, you know, 
one propping up esports on its own, but then also just letting everyone fend for themselves. Let's bring everyone together now and let's plan this out so that as it expands and as the industry develops organically, you know, people aren't getting people aren't getting neglected. And, you know, the traditional organizations aren't suffering because their viewership and their membership is going to esports when in reality they don't need to be different. And then I think in the long term, when you start to have more integrated VR, AR experiences, because they have developer connections, obviously, through Tencent, um, and then independently as well. And that's where the IESF, I think, will end up filling the gap and just saying, we're going to be the people that come in for the countries that are less than desirable because there's not a lot of money that can be made and the political and social environment might not be you know, as amicable and to the Western the infrastructure isn't maybe business. as developed and we need to kind yeah. of help with hotels and airports and transportation and things to actually make a tournament or a live event even possible there. Right. Right. And, you know, at some point the GF and the IESF will probably have to talk. <laughs> I don't think there's a situation where they can go uh, living in not bubbles, but living uh, isolated forever. And especially if this is the way things pan out, then they obviously will end up working together very intimately. But, you know, um, I'm sure other organizations will pop up. I mean, because you even mentioned at the beginning, like there are other organizations. Wesco and WESA and then the Esports Integrity. So that's kind of like another kind of question. Do you think the future of, you know, esports governing bodies is more of them or do you think they're going to? kind of like you maybe hinted at kind of merge into each other and work together more and or is it just going to be like people are just going to keep popping up as more stakeholders feel they need the opportunity yeah i mean it's probably a combination of all of those until like the ioc decides that something is going to happen and obviously the developers need to be on board with that but um until the ioc really rules on anything there will be uh, groups that pop up and they'll obviously service very specific needs. So one of the things that's unique about the IESF actually is that like they're, they're, they're main sponsors. So they have like city of Busan, their like tourism board is a sponsor. And then they have um, some tourism board in Israel that sponsors them. I don't know why they sponsor them because they don't do anything in Israel. They are a very South Korea focused organization when it comes to having large events, but that's the case. Um, a similar thing is with the, the the other sort of governing quote unquote governing bodies that exist that aren't really relevant to note because they don't do much and they kind of only exist on paper. Um, with those organizations, <laughs> they're like their membership is is just uh, the IESF members. So they're, they're not even unique organizations and they are kind of just created by different stakeholders that felt that they needed to be doing something. So you have a lot of different Chinese agencies uh, and then localities that are that support those as well as groups in Iran. So I don't know why they did so that. The Wild West. Did- like this is going to be a very interesting debate and conversation that's going to really come until the true governing boards like, you know, the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, comes in and kind of decides how everything's going to play out. Yeah, I mean, that's also the and way that... Fair. That, that makes, that makes sense. Too. Like, you know, yeah. I think that it kind of comes to the point where all these kind of governing boards have their different 
agendas and what they're trying to do. And, you know, the one in Germany got a whole new visa category passed. And, you know, as we were mentioning earlier, Korea, you know, Kespa and in Japan esports, they have all kinds of legislation and different licensing that they've implemented. So, you know, I think that it's just going to be a continuation of more organizations getting involved until a true governing body with real authority to decide these things kind of comes and says, you are in charge. This is how things are going to go. And this is the way. Right. Right. And even if they don't, which I don't think is going to be the case for a good 10 years at at the minimum. Oh, wow. um, Okay. Yeah. So we actually, here's a fun little tidbit. I I don't, I don't usually tell people because never comes up. We talked to, uh, we were in conversations with, I say conversations, we had a conversation um, with some of the global uh, strategic partnerships people for the uh, Special Olympics. And um, they were involved in something in the Washington area. So uh, our founder, obviously, or actually not obviously, our founder was based there when he was doing work for Microsoft. So he became familiar with what they were doing. They partnered with the Xbox division. So he got intimately familiar with what they were doing there. So, you know, there was obviously something going on. We decided, hey, let's hit him up, see if there's a way to collaborate, see if we can do something. When we talked to them, um, the only thing that we could really get was one if you're looking to do esports oh excuse me if you're looking to do esports um with the ioc uh, or with the special olympics like you can't be doing it at the high level it has to be the most local level possible because they have the most leeway and they will do whatever seems best for their group and they're not sort of restricted by the the very high level organizational politics that that exist um but one of the things that they, they made very clear was that there is opposition to making esports a recognized part of the Special Olympics because it is a charity and they don't believe that um, esports is a healthful activity. Um, and then the Olympics is obviously the, the International Olympics Committee, very similar situation, I would imagine, um, which is kind of why you had the IOC people create the GEF. So as the parallel, but. Um, obviously the focus is different. So it's not necessarily that it's not a healthful activity, but that it's not a real sport is the uh-huh, concern. Right. That's the kind con- of, is it a sport? Well, I don't know. You'd be the judge. I don't know who is the judge what a sport is. I think it's cooler than squash, but you tell me that <laughs> that squash is in the Olympic committee. I don't know how William would feel about that. My man, William representing squash, but, uh, you know, I mean that, that's sort of the situation. So until those high level people who are kind of restricting esports from being recognized for these governing bodies um, leave um, or change their minds, which doesn't seem to be like what's going to happen, then, you know, it's just it's going to be a very local event. There's going to be a lot of different organizations that do it. And hopefully um, people realize that we don't all need to compete. That's a very important thing. Um, I was watching uh jim o'hagan's podcast yesterday uh he had uh victoria horsley from the united from the unified collegiate esports association um on and this was a key point which is that the ucea does not compete against other organizations and it's dumb to make everyone compete with for this for this very limited market we're all doing different things we can all partner on things just choose your niche 
and service that, you know, do that niche well. Um, same thing at the global level, which is kind of why um, if the IESF is run well, which I don't believe it isn't, you know, they'll take their niche, which is de- uh, developing countries. The GEF will take their niche, which is the uh, stakeholder orientation, which puts them at the top. But we can all coexist. <laughs> you know, we just we just need to agree that that's something that's acceptable, which when you talk to the more traditionally minded people in esports that have a sports background and are using sports as their reference for everything, they disagree because there needs to be a clear, this is the person in charge and everybody else is an outsider, which obviously doesn't make sense in esports. But yeah, Great. we'll see. So, yeah. we'll see. This is gonna be, it's going to be a very interesting thing that it seems like it's going to be kind of happening over the next years, if not decades. And you know, hopefully, I just saw that break dancing made it to the Olympics. So, you know, it, it seems like they're kind of moving away from the traditional, you know, right. traditional sports. But yeah, let's let's kind of have a few more points here. So, tell us a little about Burning River Esports. You know, what is it? What are you currently working on with them? Yeah. So, the story behind Burning River Esports, um, some of it is rooted in the Azara story. Obviously, uh, well, not obviously. Um, everything I do outside of the USEA uh, is with one person in particular. He's the person that got me into esports. Where you know we've been friends since high school. We just do esports together and business in general and politics. Hopefully, but we'll see how that works out. Um, so uh, obviously, it's it's based in the Azara story because of that. But you know, we've always had a focus on doing things in Cleveland. Um, Cleveland doesn't really get attention <laughs> or at least it doesn't get good attention. Um, and when it, you know, when it does, it's very limited and it's only because some millionaire decided to have some, you know, international conference here. And it's like, all right, but that's not really Cleveland. Like that's just a millionaire who decided to have a conference here. So, um, you know, having things that are Cleveland specific and sort of having a more home, uh, a homegrown experience that actually benefits the people that live in Cleveland is rare. Um, because the people that have money don't live in Cleveland. They live in the suburbs and they just come to do that. And all of the cultural development sort of happens around that and as well as the economic development. But that's a, that's a whole political issue that is a nightmare. Yeah. That's just, um, that's outside the scope of our conversation. We're talking about the right. fun stuff. Right. But, you know, it is kind of based in all these issues that are unique to Cleveland. Well, not unique, but happen in Cleveland. Um, and we said, well, you know, we do esports, um, and we, through our high school connections, and obviously through the focus that uh, our high school had. So we went to a high school called Saint Ignatius High School. Uh, it's a private Jesuit school. So um, basically, all those uh, prep schools that everyone likes to hate—that that's us. Um, but it does give us, you know, a very charity-sided way of doing things because that is their focus. They stay in Cleveland because of that, and it's a whole thing. So, um, you know, charity is, is is kind of an important thing to us, and obviously Cleveland as well. So bringing esports into that in a charitable sense and having a youth development perspective on what esports can be sort of underlies everything we wanted to do. Um, it wasn't until... Uh, sort of I got involved with the USEA that the idea of doing Burning River Esports as an organization sort of crystallized. Um, It was just a bunch of amorphous ideas floating around. Sort of in our initial conversations in the USEA when we were planning things out, um, 
you know, I, I, I found myself kept coming back to, to saying, you know, in Cleveland, things are like this. And that isn't the case with every different city. Every city is different. So realizing that there is a space for organizations that take a very local perspective because they know the area and they can do things appropriately there, knowing, realizing that that is the case and realizing I have connections in esports and again, Cleveland connections, Burning River Esports got born. Um, at that point, it had no focus. It was just, you know, ideals. Um, but that's the start. So um, sort of our long t- our long term goal is to create uh, what we call Burning River Rec, um, which really just is a, a recreational esports infrastructure. Again, very similar to what the USEA wants to do, but obviously it's more hands on and Cleveland specific. Um, and then obviously uh, looping in uh, uh, counties outside of uh, Cuyahoga and you know, bringing in Northeast Ohio under it as well would be cool, but really creating the recreational infrastructure for Cleveland so that as esports arrives here, because it hasn't really shown up yet, once it gets here and it takes off, um, just making sure that the development is equitable and that no one is getting left behind in what we're doing, because that's always a concern for Cleveland, especially now, um, since everything's remote. Um, and people don't have stable internet access, they don't have computers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, just being the organization to ensure that anyone can do esports at any time and that there, you know, there there isn't an issue of, of accessibility, even once the big money shows up. Um, sort of what we're gonna, probably gonna do next year to start get it programming going, because Burning River Rec relies on traditional organizations being on board, which is impossible because they don't think it's important, especially here. So it's that's a problem. But um, we kind of want to do like one off events that get us involved with a bunch of different groups in in particular. So I I had the idea uh, around Thanksgiving, actually. I'm like, well, Cleveland's a sports city. You know, we have turkey bowls. Everybody has a turkey bowl. Why don't we do a Madden event with the Browns? Like, just do that. Have a competition and everyone can get involved. We get the Greater Cleveland Sports Commission in. It'll be a whole thing. So I think our focus is going to be something like that uh, for the next year, just doing one-off events, sort of easing all the traditional organizations into esports, And then once they start, you know, once they get acclimated to what the space looks like and how they can be involved, start of start ramping up what it is that we do, um, obviously progressing into doing the uh, large recreational infrastructure. Awesome. Awesome. So to now conclude everything, What's the future for the United States Esports Association? Yeah, so uh, I, I believe we talked about it before, but um, y- you know the stakeholder situation is very unique, so it does require a lot of outreach. So moving forward into the next year, we are putting a heavy emphasis on outreach, first for Scholastic, uh, going to educators, athletic directors, uh, and then all the way down to student leaders who are sadly left out of the equation. Uh, and then moving into more traditional institutions that are community staples, so youth organizations in addition to um, governments, chambers of commerce, uh, and then visitors bureaus as well. We, we've had some interest there in the past. And then really um, towards the end of the year, trying to bring back some of the uh, really the, the actual recreationalism that we're founded to support. 
Um, so trying to start pilot projects in cities or really anywhere uh, with any organizations that would like to is, is the goal. And then moving forward beyond that, it is just kind of refining everything we've built so far. So further strengthening relationships, uh, further being a, uh, a support resource for any organization looking to get into esports, and then obviously also supporting the, the actual development of leagues. Awesome. I, mean, I think that's really important that now, especially everyone's been cooped up and probably cooped up for a couple months more to be able to have this new outlet. Maybe they kind of picked up gaming and they kind of got more serious into it. And now they want to join, you know, I kind of look at it in New York, you have these basketball leagues and kickball leagues that are almost networking opportunities where you're bonding with other people. You're using it to make friends or using it to socialize or even just to find business opportunities or career advancement. So I think it'll be interesting to see how your organization is able to help kind of spread what you're doing, especially on the, the kind of the fun side of esports throughout the community in general. Exactly. Um, so, yes, yeah, so I really like to end each episode with my three questions. So, you know, they're, they're brain busters, but I think you'll be all right with them. <laughs> so what so what's your favorite game to watch? Oh, I don't like that question. Um, yeah. So because I got into esports uh, less than voluntarily. Uh, I never really got into it uh, because it's entertaining. Um, so the only eSport that I actually do watch regularly is Rainbow Six Siege, uh, usually North America, but then also Europe. And that's more of a uh, market research exercise than anything else, but gradually learning to like it. Okay, so you're not just sitting there looking through Twitch and seeing what everyone's playing. Um, if I am, it's not for an eSport, but... Usually not, no. Okay, cool. So what's your favorite game to play? Yeah, that's exactly what I, I go through Twitch for. Um, I, uh, it's Right now, it's uh, Escape from Tarkov. Um, but, you know, the game is, is very unbalanced post-wipe. So right now, it's great because they just wiped the game and it's, it's actually a good game. As it progresses, though, it'll become very unfun very quickly. So when that happens, uh, I'll, I'll usually transition over to a grand strategy game. Uh, in the past, I've played Stellaris pretty extensively, but, you know, any Paradox game will do. Okay, awesome. So who's your favorite video game character? <sighs> Ooh. Uh, <laughs> I think the meme answer I like to give is Nuclear Gandhi. Um I don't know if everyone knows what that even is. Uh, so in Civ, oh, I forget which Civ it is. I think it's Civ 5, uh, or maybe not. One of the Civ games, the AI <laughs> the AI likes to do a thing where um, Gandhi becomes very aggressive out of nowhere, and he starts nuking everyone. So nuclear Gandhi. Okay, I like that one. That's the most unique answer I have, so I, I'm definitely going to take that one to the bank. <laughs> So yeah, you know, yeah. thank you so much for joining us. This was extremely insightful. And everyone out there, make sure you check what the U.S. Esports Association is doing. There's a lot of information on their website. And thanks, everybody, again for tuning in. Make sure to follow me on Twitter, Justin J-E-S-Q. Check Apple Podcasts for all our past episodes. Mm-hmm.